whenever people talk about the mental toughness aspect, really what that is in the traditional term is being in control of your emotions. And it's like, but you can be in control of your emotions all you want, but if your body's not going to get you there, if you don't know what you need to do in that situation, you're going to freak out 90% of the time. Do you do intermittent fasting? Sometimes. Depends. Intermittently. Yeah. Intermittently. <laughs> intermittently. <laughs> uh, only in the winters. Only in the winters? Only in the winters. When you can't run like super early outside in the morning. Are you a runner? I love running. Really? Yeah. I love it. Oh, oh you played soccer. soccer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's the most natural form of workout. <laughs> so do you enjoy running or has it just become a habit at this point? Honestly, both. You still get the runner's high, right? Runner's high for sure. Runner's high after like 20-ish minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. For sure. Anything less. Like some people I know do like 15, 10s type of thing in the morning. I can't do that. I oh, like so you have high. to do Yeah. The, okay. I like that. 30 minutes, best. Really? Yeah, 30 minutes is the best. Why? Enough time to think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're like, actively thinking while you're... Oh, yeah. Well, have you guys heard of like active, like an active meditation? Yeah. That's no, exactly what is it. That? It's like literally, it's like meditating while doing something physical. It's awesome. Really? Yeah. There's an app. I think it's called um, Healthy Mind, something like that. Healthy Mind or something. But, anyways, it literally, you can choose still or active meditation. Coolest thing I've done. Interesting. Honestly. Have you done that? I haven't done it, but I've heard of it. Mm. I've heard of it, yeah. And uh, honestly, for me, it's like way more I'll get out of the run and like thinking when I'm actually trying to do that than I would just like still thinking. Yeah. Totally. Is there any other activity where you can do that with? You compare it with anything. Okay. Really. Um, biking, cycling, like they, they consider endurance is usually better because it's like still consistent forms yeah. versus like weight training where you have to pick up and put down. And yeah. Or like any other sport where you, you're actively thinking about Correct. what you're doing next. Okay. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Matt Calderoni, welcome to the Gen Stock Pod. Thank you. Welcome, it's welcome. Awesome, awesome to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 excited to have a conversation with you. Um, totally. Tell us a little bit about yourself. For people who don't know who you are, what you do, you've played some soccer. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of performance coaching. You work with a lot of athletes uh, in the NBA across a lot of the the national sports there. But maybe give us a, a brief uh, intro into to who Matt is, and sure. we'll go from there. So. My brother and I run a company called Molotium, where we specifically focus on helping high performers build resilience. And started it back in 2015 after finished I finished my own stint playing soccer. I was a goalkeeper um, and really realized when I was playing that probably one of the biggest areas of performance that I'm not going to say we're untapped, but maybe not done the right way was the mental side, right? Where a lot of the time it's about more so like generalized terms or generalized tools or whatever versus like real set regimented reps and so on of a program. Hmm. So we came, when I came home, I created that started with a player on the Toronto Maple Leafs when I was 22 years old. And then it just blew up essentially from there after we sold the story. So 
It's um, we've been running that now, my brother and I, since 2015. Seen over about 5,300 high performers from youth athletes to pro athletes to corporations to CEOs, and um, it's been fantastic because you really get to learn a lot about people. You really get to learn a lot about the belief systems that they have, and more importantly, how they kind of just reason with adversity in so many different ways. And it's funny because we all think that it's something that's so like just fixed when really there's so many different ways to do that. And there's so many different, like it's not just personal development. It's not just mental. It's, there's so many different things you can do. Can you give us an example of what that would look like? Yeah. So like the typical high performer to get into a good spot, you could do visualization let's say, but visualization can happen in so many different forms when it comes down to imagery, right? It could be watching film for one. It could be journaling about your performance for another. It could be closing your eyes and using a form of, you know, a guided visualization for another kind. And it's like, that to me is the most interesting part because I feel like if as, you know, people, we really find what make us makes, makes us tick and what really allows us to feel good, we could get so much more out of ourselves. Right. So what separates a high performing athlete from the average athlete? And we're not talking about just the ability to score the goal or, sure. or, or whatnot, but just in terms of a mindset. I would say, I would say core, what we call a core hunger. So really having a vision of what they want, a purpose of why they want it and what we call leverage to hold themselves accountable. They know how life will be worse off. They'll be worse off in life if they don't commit and how they'll be better off if they do. And that facing of pain or pleasure on a daily basis is really what gets them going. And that's what allows them to be consistent. For me, it's it's literally the discipline to stick to that and constantly go back to it. So if you look at any top performing athlete, from what we find at least, all of them have this hunger to do what they need to do right? There's somebody they want to take care of. Maybe it's in some cases, which I don't highly suggest to prove people wrong in others. It's to see if they could actually do it, but there's a vision and there's a purpose and there's, there's very simple, like life gets better if I do this and worse if I don't, and they stick to it. Why wouldn't proving someone or proving people wrong? Why wouldn't that be a good motivational tool? I think it's a great tool to spark you. I think it's a bad long-term strategy. Mm. Right. Cause like you think about it, the moment that it becomes something where it's just consistently this person sticking in the back of my head and I'm proving them wrong all the time and so on, you can go to dark places. Yeah. Mm. Right? There's always going to be more people that are going to be hating on you. So it's like, you're always going to be trying to fight that. hundred percent. It's a never ending battle. It's a never ending battle. And on top of it too, like you got to look at some of the most iconic who openly talked about proving people wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. best, one of the best athletes ever could only do it for however many years. And like, yes, I know he accomplished a lot, would never take that away, but it's like, then you compare it to another athlete like a Tom Brady who went and did it for way longer. Um, not saying that Tom's whatever more superior in any way, but it's like, those were two guys that went about it completely differently, right? One ended up winning um, over a longer period of time. The other didn't in a shorter. In my opinion, I think the proving people wrong thing is a very short-term play compared to, you know, the long term of, okay, you might use that to spark you, which a lot of people do, a lot of athletes do, right? Usually when it's like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to make the first team on my soccer team and coach said I couldn't do it, so I'm going to go prove him wrong. And then you do it and it's like, okay, now what? Mm -hmm. Right. 
You, you know, you have to, some people try and find demons and vices and that's usually where it gets dark. So they actively seek those out. They actively, I think it was in the last dance too. Michael Jordan talks about, he goes, even though people weren't actually talking about me, I pretended they were. Did you guys ever hear that? Yeah. That extrovert, right? And it's like, that's a hard way to live, man. Yeah. That's a real hard way. So it's like for us, it's a good spark. Long-term though, I think it's a bad idea. What are some good like long-term motivators? What you want to create and build. Yeah. Honestly, we just had actually a, a high profile athlete whose agent reached out to us a couple of days ago. The individual is well into his thirties, well established in the pro sports world. And it's like, he's done everything. Like he's won the championships. He's gotten the, the captaincies. He's won the contracts over that he's needed to. He's made more money than he did the year before. He's pushed himself harder than he ever has. And it's like, he goes, Matt, like I'm, I've done it. Yeah. Like no one's saying I'm not a good athlete. So that doesn't motivate me. He's like, I've already invested in X, Y, Z. Like that doesn't really motivate me. It's like, well, now what do you want to build? And then once you, you know, through a lot of deep work on discovering what means something to you, what you want the next decade of your life to look like, what you expect for your children, what you expect, then it's like, oh, that's exciting again. Mm. Right. So for us, it's more so you can get sparked by adversity and controversy, but then you have to build something. It's creation. How do you go about uncovering some of that? It sounds like you, there's a very intimate process in terms of getting to know the person on a human level. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, it depends. So this is a funny kind of way of looking at it. It depends what they come to us for. So in this case where you have an individual who's come to us for increasing the career, if you will, or prolonging it, it's usually where they're not really coming from a bad place like they've reached some kind of adversity. It's usually like, hey, you know, like I just, I need a new spark, right? right? So for us, we follow four steps. It's commitment first. So you got to understand what the individual wants to commit to. That's the vision part that we talk about. A lot of people look at resilience and it's like, oh, I'm going to build the, the mental skill of resilience. It's like, that's, it's, it's way deeper than a skill, right? It's like, it's a lifestyle. It's a trait. It's, it's who you are. It's, you need to have a vision that you're willing to fight for. Once you have a vision, it's like, okay, let's build the competence behind that then. Do you have the skills? Have you have you built the skills? Have you acquired the skills? Do you have them already and we need to enhance them? What's that step there? So you build confidence and what we call competence behind it. Then there's a focus. It's understanding exactly what it is that will potentially be a distraction and being able to call that out. I feel like that's a really tough one for people to look at sometimes because we see it all the time where unfortunately it could be a family member. It could That's be distracting them. Absolutely. From, okay. Right. Like look at on a side note, like let's look at a lot of the time what happens when we have an athlete who's trying to lose weight and it's like, okay, what are the potential distractions? Like, man, when I go home to my mom's on the weekend, <laughs> gotta eat. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's like eat. in that, and then you have that belief system that you've built since you were a kid where it's like, I want to make mom happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's like, that's a distraction, man. Yeah. We got to get rid of that. And then the last part's toughness which is interesting where it's, Hey, as long as you adapt your approach until you get what you want, you can do anything. Can you teach toughness? Yeah, absolutely. So it's usually a result of the first three things that I mentioned. So if you have a commitment, if you know what it is that you want and you're really committed to it, you have that vision, that purpose, that leverage on yourself. If you know what skills you have and what you bring to the table, you'll be able to now understand, okay, I've got something to push me. That's going to be your commitment. I've got the skills to be able to do this. And then on top of it, I have the focus to maintain 
focused on the thing that I want, no matter what comes up around me, toughness usually becomes a result of that. So it's not like there are skills behind toughness to build, for example, like rebounding or, uh, you know, from an adverse situation or maintaining that focus. And you can have a system behind it where you reset. But at the end of the day, you need those three things in order to be tough. Otherwise, let's play a scenario game for a sec. If you don't have something you're committed to, right, Mm -hmm. and adversity strikes, it's like, well, that's okay. Mm. right it's like you don't care if you lose because you're not committed to it exactly it's like oh that that that, that's fine i'm i'm done with that um if you have commitment and you have focus but you don't have competence it's like oh what do i do in this situation oh forget it Mm -hmm. i'm out right and then it's like if you have competence in and and commitment which a lot of motivated rallying people do but you can't stay focused you're going to go off in 20 different directions and the moment you have that shiny object syndrome that comes up you're going to be going to it right Right, so it's like toughness usually is a result of having all three. It's it's not like it's a very long process to build, but you need to have those three pieces in place to get it. So it's our, toughness in a very different lens. Absolutely, not toughness in the sense no, of like, like like physically. Yeah, tough. Yeah. So yeah, physically. Yeah. yeah, and people usually get that wrong, right? Like if so, we were actually breaking down resilience the other day, and it's like, well, we, there's three faces to it, right? There's a mental side, which is being in control of your emotions. There's a physical side where your body is being able to adapt to what's being thrown at it and you have the skills to do so. And there's a social side because you could have the physical capabilities, but for the wrong environment, right? right? So it's like, whenever you talk, whenever people talk about the mental toughness aspect, really what that is in the traditional term is being in control of your emotions. And it's like, but you can be in control of your emotions all you want, but if your body's not going to get you there, if you don't know what you need to do in that situation, you're going to freak out 90% of the time. How do you, how do you, I guess, keep them grounded when, when they're trying to learn all of these new things or like in the example of a person who's already established his career, her career, mm-hmm. and they come to you and they're like, I'm less, I'm just trying to find that spark again. I'm trying to get motivated again. I've accomplished A, B, and C. How do you keep them, I guess, focused, maybe not grounded, but focused? For us, it's always coming back to the vision. So like great example, if I want to build a multimillion dollar company. And that's what my vision is. And we have a saying that we follow, which is you have to, so there's five steps, right? You decide what it is you want, and then you have to commit to the reality of the process in order to get there. This is something that a lot of people don't do, right? So it's like, I want to build this multi-million dollar business. It's like, that's great. You really can. Anybody really can, right? And I'm not just trying to be positive in any way, but it's like, if you, if you really want that, you can get it. But where most people fall off is they don't commit to what the reality of the process is about to be. You might have $50,000 of debt you need to first work yourself out of that you just took from the bank. And if you think it's going to happen overnight like that, it's really not. Right. Right. So it's like there's a commitment there that has to happen. Then you have to take action on it. Once you take action, you have to be flexible in your approach and adapt. And then you usually succeed. Like the best example is a Tom Brady, right? Drafted 199th overall. He decides who he wants to be. He commits the reality of his process. He takes action. And then all he keeps doing is adapting until he gets what he wants. Mm-hmm. That's really it. So is Tom Brady an example of a player that had to work to develop the skill set? Like, there's some players that are just naturally gifted, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you can spot them from the age of 15 years old. You're like, that player, that kid is going to make it to the NBA, to the NHL, you name it. Mm -hmm. Tom Brady goes 199th, basically the last pick, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden becomes one of the greatest of all time. How much of that was actual 
natural talent and how much of that from your perspective crafted to be honest i believe 100 percent crafted yeah interesting because if you ever look at any naturally talented person if you truly look at it they've always had some kind of rep like repetitive experience in their life that caused them to use that skill whether or not it was passive practice or active practice right so like another great example is leonel messi mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you read his biography right his 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 autobiography or biography whatever it was there's a point in it that I believe it's his, somebody's talking about it, either his mom or somebody who who wrote this excerpt on it and said, Lionel Messi used to play close to up to eight hours a day in the streets to try and beat his brother when he was very, very young. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so that's a great example of like a passive practice, right? It's like, I just want to beat my older brother, right? <laughs> right? And then it's like, you stay on the streets for close to up to eight hours a day sometimes. Yeah. You're going to build some skills, yeah. right? And then you look at that kid who's 12 years old who finally gets recognized and it's like, oh, look at that talent. right? Mm. And it's like, but that's that was crafted. Whether or not he meant to do it, he that was crafted, right? Uh-huh. Even if you look at some people who are very talented in the coaching realm and in, in the speaking, right? It's like, there's points in their life where they probably had to be that practical psychologist, whether or not they knew it. Right. Maybe family went through a tough time or whatever, and they just got really good at talking to people. And then they become, you know, these 25 year old phenoms. And it's like, well, he was actually doing that for 20 years without even knowing it. Right. Right. So for me personally, I'm, I'm a big believer that talent is always crafted. I believe we are born, you know, with gifts in a sense where it's like, maybe you, you, you have a deeper passion than some other people for certain things and you really run with that. But I believe that everything that people accomplish is crafted 100%. You work with coaches? Yes. Is there, what, what makes a good coach? I'm always fascinated by that because mm. I feel like coaches have the ability to completely derail who reports to them, I guess mm-hmm. I'll call it, but also have the ability to spark someone and also be able to pull amazing things from player from average individuals yeah honestly the best coaches i've seen are individuals that start with the core of selflessness okay where it's 100 percent about the other person and they know that the only way to become a successful coach is if they make it about the other person mm. that's as simple as it is once we see that they have that base of selflessness and they want to be so damn good at that job that they're willing to be more selfless than they ever have, there's a set of values usually behind them that they stand by and they don't break. Mm. Because if I've seen something with some of the best coaches we've seen, so we work with a very high-end developmental hockey team in, in the States, and they turn over quite a few NHL draft picks each year. And they're notorious for it. They're known for it. And it's like there's a value system within this team that they're holding players accountable to versus 99% of the other teams that are holding them accountable just to results. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's like these coaches have such high-end values that actually make the results a byproduct of what they're doing. So if a value, for example, is you show up every day and you work, that's naturally going to turn over positive results if you guide them the right way. Right. Right? Like if I walk in and I guide player A, to be working and it's like, hey, you know what? I have the selflessness. I'm going to make sure you get to the next level. You need to untamedly work at this specific skill. You're naturally going to take them to the promised land, right? So and it's not, it's, it's less about focusing on, you know, 
winning the actual game, but doing the right things that would ultimately lead to winning the game. Absolutely. And like, that's where, but this is where it's interesting with these coaches too. There's some that talk values, but don't hold them. And that's a really, really, really tough thing to watch because automatically you lose the respect of your people. And if you see any great leader and you look at any great leader and it's like, why do you look to these leaders? Like there's a belief system that they have that they stand by no matter what. And it's like, I get on with that guy or gal, Mm. right? So it's interesting because when you look at the coach's side, it's like the only way a coach can ever be successful is if they truly make their people better. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like it's, it's its own paradox. Right. How do you, how do you define resilience and why do you, why is that such an important thing to tap into? So for me, this was a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, so I was never the, so I, I loved soccer at the age of four. Mm. I'll never forget when my brother and I were watching the Italian national team at my parents' house. And immediately right after that, we went outside. My brother, Chris, started shooting on me and I was the goalkeeper. Right, and it was he's like, older. Yeah, he's a yeah, year old. So that's why you're going. Oh, yeah. yeah, I had to. It was like, yeah, it was like, it it was by absolute like just yeah. not going net. It's yeah. like, all right. <laughs> so went in and fell in love with the whole part about throwing myself all over the place, yeah. and um, just grew up a very passionate, typical Italian soccer fan mm. um, who ate way too much of my grandmother's pasta on both sides. <laughs> And naturally put on way too much weight that I should have at that age. And um, it was when I was 12 years old and my, that my dad said to my brother and I, my brother was 13, he goes, you guys should just try out for All-Star. Like, see if you can do it. So I was like, all right, what do I have to lose? Yeah. So I went and did it, um, made it that year. It was a fun experience. And then that coach actually ended up, when I was 11, 12 years old, going to the rep level. And he goes, you know, you should come try out for this team. And I said, okay. He goes, we're basically going to field the same team. And, you know, you basically have a slotted spot as a goalkeeper. I was like, all right, let's do it. This is going to be great. So went there and it was probably the worst experience of my life. Um, Because I had a coach who literally called me out for eating too much of my grandmother's pasta (laughs) consistently. And he made me feel it. He made me, he was old school. And it was one of those coaches who believed in people taking action by fear Okay. to a point that, you know, it got really bad for me where I was like, I wanted to quit the team. Like it was, it, it was, it was tough. And that was the first real experience of this resilience I had without even ever really knowing it where my dad came up to me. So my dad ends up yelling at the coach and he goes, just go wait in the car. I was like, all right. <laughs> so left the practice. <laughs> I know what that I knew what that meant. And I get home and my mom and dad, they said, look, we'll support you with whatever it is you decide to do. If you want to keep playing, by all means. If you don't want to keep playing, it's up to you. And I'll never forget that was the day I made the choice. Like this is where the whole commitment thing starts to come in. It's like, I want to be a pro. Mm-hmm. I'll find a, I don't know how I'll do it, but I'm going to find a way. So in my head, I mentioned this all the time, I was already living in Italy in my head. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm this Italian soccer player, whatever. Every piece of food I put in my mouth reflected that from now on. The way I trained reflected that. The decisions I made reflected that. Um, Finally then, you know, even though I wasn't as good at the age of 15, I was a late bloomer. All the kids in my high school were playing like really high-end soccer. They were already starting to get, you know, 
messages and recruitments from these D1 schools in the States. And I didn't have any of that. And I just had this dream and this passion. So 17 years old, finally came around. Um, I went through some, you know, people making fun of you in high school typically. And finally got a scholarship to a Canadian university, Ontario Tech, when I decided to just reach out to the coach. He came to watch a game and he goes, you're actually pretty good. Like, why don't you come along? We can start you here and go from there. I got freshman of the year in my first year, which was great. And that's when I really saw like, wow, like if I, if I really put my head down, I can do this. Right. And then it was in my, the end of my um, sophomore year that I decided I'm going to get on a plane and just go to Italy. Did you have a team lined up or you just? Luckily got a team. Um, (laughs) My grandmother's cousin owns, (laughs) this is crazy, right? So my grandmother's cousin owns a hotel in the south of Italy in Calabria and actually knew the owner of a team called Cosenza and called the owner and says, hey, I have a favor. And the owner says, yeah, bring him out. Let's see what happens. And the owner goes, I actually really like him. And that was my end. Yeah. Right. Um, But that's where stuff really got tough for me because like defeated the adversity here in Canada, sure, in Ontario, but it's much different than when you go to Italy and you don't know the language that well and you're perceived as taking somebody's job and then... a favor. Yeah, yeah, right? And it's like, that's where now, that's where things got tough. And it's like, okay. Multiple times I would come home from practice pretty much like crying because it's like guys would, when I was in the shower, they would take my shoes and cut the laces. Um, they would take your training kit and they would throw it out wherever they had to throw it out. They would take your goalie gloves and cut off the, 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 um, straps on your wrists. And it's like, can I do this? Yeah. (laughs) Right. And it was, it's great because it's a nice fairy tale, fairy tale story, but like that was, that was tough. That was unnecessary. Yeah. And it's like, you know what, this is the real, this is real. Like this isn't, this isn't college in, Mm. in, in Canada where you're lucky to get a scholarship to school. Like these are kids that genuinely look at this as they're out. Yeah. And it's in, I understand it's in Italy and it's, you know, a little more developed than some nations, but it's still impoverished in many ways. Right. And going to the South of Italy where it's very poverty stricken, um, you're not welcome, mm-hmm. especially being a goalkeeper where, you know, not any kid could play it in Italy, but literally like the, the older brother scenario, it's like, you're not really good enough playing out in Italy. Like, put on some gloves and see if you're good in net. Right. Right. right? And, like, right. that's how they get their jobs a lot of the times. They just train from that. So that, for me, was where I hit a bit of a low when I realized I didn't have – I wish I knew more than I did at the time. Um, I didn't have the mental wherewithal that I needed to, to, to really push through at that level. So what would you – what advice would you give to a kid today – who may be in a similar position to the one that you were in. Hmm. What advice can you give them that if you had received when you were in that position would have helped you? This is going to be temporary. Fight through it. It's going to be temporary. It's going to suck. It's going to suck for probably four months, but Hmm. fight. Just, it'll go. You will earn the respect as you show that you're not phased by it. Hmm. But keep your head down and fight. And at the four-month mark, if it's not better, reevaluate. Hmm. But that's that's truly what I wish someone would have told me because if I did do it then, I did have the talent and the ability, in my opinion, and from the opinion of others, too, to go to the next level. But I'll be honest with you guys, too. Like When I came home after that, there was something I felt that was missing in me 
that I really experienced to a whole new degree when I started this whole coaching company. And that's where it was like, wow, something, there's something more that sparks me than just playing soccer that I think I need to trust here. So, and the coach, you said that there was that one coach that was very old school. Yeah. There's still a lot of those kinds of coaches spread throughout the various leagues today. Yeah. Whether it's the junior leagues or the pro leagues, you see it all the time. You see, you know, whenever a, a coach in the NHL gets moved to another <laughs> team, they're like, oh, this guy's a hard ass. How is he going to fit in with this person and that person? Is that still an effective method? And was it ever really an effective method? Mm, absolutely not. It's a, it's the whole prove me wrong. Yeah. Right. It's short term, right? And it's like any coach that hasn't adapted towards that, you can see has not worked on themselves in any way. Right. Because the reality is there are multiple studies on on fear-driven teams, organizations, whatever. Like we even see this at the corporate level, right? Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to scare the shit out of my sales team. It's like, that's a really bad tactic. Yeah. Let's talk like, first of all, because salespeople will go bite each other's heads off. Yeah, That's the reality, right? They'll mm-hmm. rip each other's throats out. And on the second side of it, you're now creating such a hostile environment that we know the brain loves safety. So fear was never the right way. Your brain wants to know that I can perform in this environment. I'm not going to get in trouble for it. And I can try new things and be creative. And when you have that psychological safety in any environment with a coach or whatever, there's your, your, the group goes into this thing called broaden and build mode, which is where they find that people will come together, not fearing a mistake and be like, Hey, did you ever think of that idea? And, oh, you know what? That's really good. How about that idea? Yeah, it's cool. And they're finding this is what allows companies to be progressive. So if you look at it, it's like, if you really want to solve solutions, make it a safe environment. Now I'm not saying you don't reprimand at all for, you know, poor negative behavior, but that's where the values come in. Cause there, I, I can imagine there are some, you know, senior managers who will look at something like that and go, but on the flip side of that argument, you make things too comfortable, too safe. People right. don't work as hard. Mm-hmm. They don't produce numbers. And I, I imagine it's the same thing from a coach's perspective. If you if you take it too easy, well, they're they're not going to play as hard for you. Yep. And that's this is exactly why it comes back to, though, even, you know, like a, a values-driven culture, right? Because, like, if, the va- if there's a value, let's pretend you put out a value as a team and it's like resolve. No matter what, you find a way. Well, that's going to get you a result, right? And it's like, well, if our target is a hundred and whatever thousand dollars in sales this period and my value is resolved, then I need to find a way to do that, Hmm. right? It's like, it's all about framing. It's all about understanding that side of it. And even when it comes down to just, even back to the whole topic on like mental health of people and so on, it's it's the same principle, right? It's people want safety, (laughs) people want that. And it's, when you don't have it, it's tough. And it's, that's when, you know, even with my own personal story, like, the, the reason I started this company was because I went into a dark spell after my sport, right? Like a, a, an identity crisis almost to a point that there was a depression in there that I felt on my own and went through on myself and didn't really tell too many people about it. And it was something I internalized. And, you know, that's, that's hard for, I think, especially with males even to do where you want to put on the brave face and you want to look at that and you know, coming home feeling like a failure sometimes, that's one of the toughest things you'll have to go through. Especially for a professional athlete in a very mm-hmm. testosterone-driven environment. Yep. Spe- and coming home to an Italian family that only months before were saying, I can't wait to buy a jersey of mm-hmm. your team. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, 
like I wish you didn't say that. Yeah, because it sits so heavy. It does. Yeah. Almost makes it worse. It makes it ten times worse. Yeah. Right? And it's like that's exactly why to go back on the original point, that's why it doesn't work to prove people wrong. Or right even. It's mm-hmm. like you gotta do it for yourself. And it's a selfish mentality. So there's nothing wrong with being selfish when it comes to those kinds of things. I don't think so at all. Actually, we love to say with even the high performers we work with, it's it it is truly selfish to be selfless. Like yeah. you look at you look at this messaging right now that's put out where it's like you got to serve everybody in front of you and it's like i'm not arguing that but it's like what's really at the root of service it's like well if you don't have anything to give how are you going to serve anybody Mm. you can't just automatically start handing over like you got to work on yourself Mm. first to be able to provide value to people right and it's like this whole notion by just put everybody before yourself i don't think that's a great push to pull to a great thing to put in front of others you know like i think that's a really detrimental message at times people forget about themselves i think we are making a shift into like people really believing that you know you have to put yourself first now Mm -hmm. and it's not it's not like you said it's not selfish when you want to put yourself first and when you start to realize that people, okay, let's if even it's something small, it's like for a dinner or something, you don't want to go out. It's mm-hmm. like you don't always have to explain, oh, because I'm this feeling this way. It's like I just need to put myself. I just need to not go out tonight. And people, I think now people are trying to accept that more. Yeah, especially after COVID and stuff like that. Well, even like you know, guys, we have a very a lot of the time short term thinking society. Mm-hmm. Easily, easily forget <laughs> all and it's time. like all right let's let's unpack that exact scenario for a sec mm. because we get that a lot with athletes it's like all right so you decide to go out after a game on a saturday night when everybody's going out sure so now you're derailed for your sat- sunday realistically it probably takes you close to about 24 hours to really recover so we're recovering now we're recovering now from um, coming home at one in the morning on sunday till one in the morning on monday so now you already feel like you're a day behind because you didn't get your recovery on a Sunday and you're rolling into your Monday now. And it's on your Monday, you feel the anxiousness, which we all do of, oh my God, I'm a day behind. Yeah. Right. And then it's like that rolls into your, your Monday practice and that bleeds into your psyche and that bleeds into the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the Thursday. And it's like, well, I had a crap week. Yeah. And it's like, I know, I, I know that sounds at times like, wow, Matt, that's really going off the deep end. But the truth of the matter is like that happens to our athletes veterans yeah well mm-hmm. i mean the, the especially older older mm-hmm. players right like the body takes even longer to recover yeah. yeah especially guys that have the routines down yeah right and it's like if you just thought long term about it it really isn't selfish because it's like let's live the other scenario it's like so you don't go out on a saturday night okay you decide to take the night for yourself you're recovered on sunday you're able to be your best for your team on the monday tuesday wednesday thursday and come friday when it's game time or whenever it is, you're able to go 100%. And hey, guess what? Your team's in a bit of a scenario right now and you are able to help them out of it because you're at your best. It's like, we often don't think of that second scenario. We often only think of the first one. Right. The second right? scenario is just so much better. It <laughs> is. And, you don't, and you're not missing anything that night. Like, you're really not. No. No. Well, that's just uh, it That's too. the appeal. Like, I was going to ask you, how do you deal with, like, or if, if at all the life of a pro athlete comes with a lot of glamour, a lot of money, a lot of, you know, distractions, distractions, Mm. people in your circle, family, friends, handouts, you name it. All of that is a a massive distraction from what the original goal is. Mm -hmm. And you see it all the time. 
do you do that kind of work with your athletes? Yeah. How do you how do you bring how do you how do you sort of help them cut some of that out without it making without making them feel like you're essentially placing them into a box and saying you can't do all of these things? So there's two ways that we look at it. The first one is it's that whole thing on committing to the reality of your process, right? So it's like, okay, you have a vision. This is what you want to do. This is your purpose. You want to build that empire. Great. Let's look at the reality first. What are the things you have to give up in order to get that? Mm. That's just, that's the most basic way to look at it where it's like, what is, what's the payoff here? So does that mean you need to have pristine health? Is that what you need to give for it? Great. Then we're going to commit to that. Does that mean you need to, um, realistically deal with that one family member who's constantly coming at you and asking for extra money on this, that, and the other. Yeah, we're going to have to deal with that. That's the first way when it comes to the immediate people, the easiest way and quickest way to really like vet your friend group, which is a real thing when it comes to accomplishing something is asking yourself, like, are they on board with this vision? If they are, they're going to understand. If they don't, it's pretty straightforward. Right. So that's, that's the most basic way. The second way on that, when it does come to going out. So part of the resilience side that we look at is actually on, on that side of going out and stepping back, you need that, right? Cause it's like, we've also seen guys and gals that are so locked in that it's like, do do you even live? (laughs) It's like, it's like, oh, they know. Yeah. And it's like, we all know that part of life is experiences. So whenever we're dealing with it with our athletes, it's like, don't go out on a Sunday, don't whatever. Go put in your calendar the next experience you want to have. There's a big difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So like we have an NBA player who is extremely successful this year. One of the biggest things we did before this individual went on road trips that are a grind is what's the experience you're looking forward to when you're done? What is it? Are you going out with family? Is it a family day? Is it going to the museum you wanted to, but every time there's usually a bout of work that we get into with a player, so it could be for like six days even, there has to be some kind of a celebration or reward at the end. It's an experience. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean going and getting bottle service every time and doing whatever. (laughs) That's usually a bad way, but there has to be some kind of experience. Like you want to take the family out, you you want to show 10 people a good time because that's what you worked hard for, go do it. But it's like, if it's under control and it's planned out and it's part of your regimen, I think that's very healthy. Is is there a, how do I word this? Is there a player or an athlete that if you came across them, or what's the trait of an athlete that you would look at and go, I can't work with this. This person is just not in the right space or I can't, even if they came to you, you would turn them away. It's always after our first initial conversation. Okay. So what something we do is always like we put them through just a talking point, right? And it's like if after that conversation we see there's there's a fake want and it's like, oh, I want to work on myself. It's like, great, man. We can totally help with that. Tell me why and tell me what you're willing to give for it. It's like, oh, well, you know, I want to do this maybe two days a week and like, the rest, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's like, well, to be honest with you, this is going to be like a six-day-a-week commitment. Can you do it? And it's not even our, our act of coaching. It's like the lifestyle aspect. you got to mm-hmm. change your habits, right? So once we see that someone's like, oh, and they're starting to struggle with that, like you can tell a lot by somebody's body language in their face. Mm-hmm. So if, if in that interaction we see it, it's like, 
my brother and I have had discussions about this before in this scenario. It's like, man, that's a big name. Like, what if we take him on and turn it around? It's like, can't do it. It's going to ruin the, it's going to literally ruin the brand of what we're doing. And more importantly, it's not going to get them the results and thinking long term. It's like, they're only going to have complaints. Yeah. yeah. And we're the And if they are the big name. Yeah, exactly. You become the scapegoat. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, for us, we'll never turn somebody away. We'll always just have a referral and be like, hey, you know what? This isn't for, this isn't what we do. But there's somebody over here that actually does something like that. If you would like to, you can have the referral and go talk to them. Yeah. And yeah. some do. On the opposite end, what is somebody that you would look for and be like, that's exactly who I want? Honestly, somebody who's just committed. Yeah. So like I was actually talking to an individual today that's that came and signed up with our program on the junior side, on the development athlete side, and he goes, oh, my kid's not really a high, high, high-end athlete. It's like, that's okay. Does he want to be better? Yeah, he's like craving it. It's like, no problem. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's really the, it sounds like a simple buy-in, but it's like people, this is what a lot of, you know, we, we do a lot with athletes. We have guys that we've worked with now for like eight years. And we've seen some even transition out of sport. And it's like the amazing things they're doing outside of sport after is, and like the fa- when you get the text message or whatever it might be of like, hey, remember when we talked about this? Yeah, that that's really where it is. It's like, Matt, the vision's coming to life. Like we had one guy I can talk about openly, DJ Reed, an NFL player. Mm. I had a call with him this morning. And he was reflecting with me on how this past weekend he went and served in a specific community. And he's like, dude, that's part of the vision. It's like, yeah, that's, that's really it. Right. So it's like, it doesn't matter if you're a pro athlete or whomever it's, if you're committed to trying to build something, we're all in, that's what we want. That's change makers, right? That's a, that's a difference maker in the world. And you work with corporate Mm -hmm. folks. Is there a noticeable difference in the approach between working with a CEO or a C-suite individual versus an athlete? Yes. It's way easier for a CEO to go out for drinks after a day of work <laughs> than it is an athlete, honestly. Right. And it's like, fuck. Like, so the distractions are even oh more. Oh my God. Yeah. It's okay. way, it's that, that by far is the biggest difference and the toughest part. I mean, athletes have access to it, but let's be real. Like they're not going to the average bar down the street. Yeah. yeah. And on top of that too, even with CEOs, like there's no real, there's no real consequence other than themselves and knowing their performance is off unless they obviously come into work and they're belligerent and they do something stupid. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's like, not affecting them physically, like the jump shots. Are yeah, really exactly. Off or yeah. Like that. And yeah. It's not televised. Yeah. <laughs> and they're televised. And we say it all the time too with athletes, right? Like athletes are judged every day in practice, Yeah. yeah. like heavily judged, like by five coaches judged. It's like the physical coach has an opinion. The physiotherapist has an opinion. The strength coach has an opinion, the shooting coach and the head coach. It's like, Oh, he's off today. It's like, can't afford that mm-hmm. decisions are made in practice if you're playing wednesday and it's a tuesday that's real yeah all right but ceos and c-suites they have i found a tougher time to deal with the distractions totally and well, do you do any kind of work with them in terms of becoming better leaders yes because right now it seems as though there's this thought process that's existing in a lot of corporate structures of the minute you're in a position of a manager of some kind now you could be a ceo and you're still a manager in some ways that doesn't automatically make you a leader mm-hmm. and a lot of times the the best performing individual gets promoted into a position where they're overseeing other people and they're not equipped for that yep 
So how do you work with those kinds of individuals? How can they become better leaders? So there's something I want to say first before we get into that. And it's, if it's an athlete or whomever, if you get a pay increase, automatically, I don't care what anybody says, like subconsciously, you are associated now with a leadership position, right? Like if you go get paid $50 million as an athlete, even though you don't have a letter on your jersey or whatever it might be, you're assumed a leader. Mm-hmm. That's just how it goes. It's it's hierarchy, right? right? So when it comes to this to the manager side and C-suite side there too, it's like a lot of it has to do with framing, right? And understanding that you're actually not managing, you're leading. That's the first biggest change is the mindset piece of it because managers just hold people accountable where leaders are ones that are trying to actually take them to something. Mm. So a leader has to come right away and it's like, hey, if you're going to lead, like you need to get very clear on the kind of leader you want to be, number one. Number two, if you're going to lead, you need to have, I'll always keep going back to this, but you need to have values that you lean on because people respect people with values. They don't respect people that are constantly changing their opinion, right? Like mm-hmm. for no reason. It's like wishy-washy people. Right. That's the number one thing we see when it comes to people who are making the transition from just worker to leader it's like as a as an employee every day you can go through the motions as a leader you're asked to make some pretty tam, damn tough decisions to a higher degree than you would be as a as an employee right mm-hmm. and it's like not knowing what you stand for at that level not knowing that you're having to take care of people that's dangerous that's very dangerous so whenever it's looking at somebody who's coming into the leadership space it's really getting clear on that because a lot of times they'll just jump into it and it's a shell shock for 90 days, right? It's like, I didn't know it was this hard. I didn't right. know I had to answer text messages about so-and-so's problem going on at home. Like that's, that's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, th- I find that that seems to be the biggest shock is, is it, a lot of, a lot of the job is no longer the actual work. Yep. It's the, the personal stuff with the staff that report to you. Mm-hmm. Well, even when I shifted from like more one-on-one coaching when I first started my company to actually CEOing first you're like is there even any work to do (laughs) (laughs) right it's like before you're so caught up in the job and then it's like whoa there's this whole 30,000 foot overview thing that I got to take a look at and that's a lot yeah Mm. it's really a lot like when you really understand your role as a leader or a CEO or even just somebody who's in charge of leading a team like it's a wide it's a wide board to look at any advice you would give incoming CEOs or people in position of that kind of leadership? Really understand what you need to do first to take care of yourself. Like one thing that I was talking to with my brother, cause we're preparing for a big hire um, coming up this summer, our next cohort of, of Molotium coaches we're bringing in. It's like one of the big things we are looking at now our personal health plans, development plans, and um, what we call experience plans. Because what we're noticing is a lot of people are willing to put their work first, and that's great, but there's always a trade-off, right? It's like, so you can go to work and not worry about your health, but the reality is if your energy is crap all day, you're not going to get the most out of your people. It's all an energy exchange, right? So it's like we have, for example, quarterly, monthly, health plans that we're working on with our people for the next cohort that comes in. We have quarterly, monthly personal development plans that we're working on with each person that comes in. And then the last part is the experience one, right? Like 
I think I think where a lot of leaders get it wrong is they think they always have to be in the mud consistently. And when they pull away for even a couple of days, they feel really guilty about it. Mm. Right. And it's like, you actually shouldn't. If you're going to be somebody who's leading people, you need to be at your best. And our number one thing when it comes to being a captain of a team or a leader, it's like, know what you need to do to stay mentally, physically, emotionally fit. And that's one of the most important things. How do you deal with the guilt? Because that seems to be a, a pretty big thing. Right? It is. Like if you're accustomed to, to being in the mud, fighting with your, your team, whether you're an athlete or whether you're a corporate, whether you're running a mom and pop shop, and then all of a sudden now you have to take that step back and see things from a very different lens. And you want to step back in to help your people, but you know, you're also weary or mindful that if you do that, you, like you don't want to be perceived as micromanaging. Mm -hmm. And if you step away, you don't want to be perceived as now you've got the big position. You don't care anymore. There is guilt. Yep. You're right. How do you deal with that? So whenever we're working on that side of things, the first rule is vulnerability. I think we forget that people are a lot more understanding than we think. Mm. Right. And it's like, if you go to your people and you're like, Hey man, I'm in one, like, I, I need just one or two days to regroup myself and I'll be back. That's the first thing. Like the only time we start judging people, if you really look at it, is when they just go off the grid and they don't say anything, right? And it's like, we're going through a tough time. Like he just disappeared. Yeah, where are they? Yeah, it's yeah. like, okay, well, first resolution part is you got to be vulnerable. Like we actually had an NBA player that did this the other night and he goes, man, my knees busted up. It's like, tell your people because it's perceived as you're quitting on us and we're trying to make a playoff run. It's like, no, no, no. I can go play two more games feeling like this and you'll get 10% of me. Yeah. Or I can take two games off and go back to 100 and you'll get that for the next four weeks. What do you want? Yeah. So the first part's vulnerability. The second part is to also make sure that, like when we say it too, you need to have a timeline on it. Because a lot of times people will just, they'll do the vulnerable piece but they won't timeline themselves. Right. So it's like it's like anything you do, right? It's like if you just you don't give yourself a, a set timeline of when you want to complete it, it's all arbitrary. It just it could go for days when a task only takes two hours. So it's like if you're actually gonna do it and you're truly going to, you need to timeline it and with a timeline comes a plan. So it's like don't just go off the grid. Like if you're really gonna go see things from a thirty thousand foot overview, go like like leave your normal habitat and go to a different one for a bit. Go, go somewhere else and actually think if you're going to think. Because a lot of times it's just an excuse. Like I saw this really cool um, meme the other day and it was somebody looking down on their phone and it said, I need a vacation. And then it said vacation and they're still looking at their phone. And then it said, I'm feeling burnt out and they're looking at their phone. And mm -hmm. it's like, that really is it, right? It's like, I'm going to disappear for a couple of days. And it's like, you're still working. Yeah. So like, if you're doing it for good intent, you should never feel guilty. And what about the great resignation that we're hearing a lot about? I feel as though a lot of that comes from people being burnt out, lack of communication between them and either their coaches, their superiors. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot of that happen across all industries. Is there, from your perspective, something happening there? I think people are, f like, I think, they've been forced to understand if they're really doing what they want to do, right? It's like, there's a lot of people that tough things out, 
Yeah. And for the first time in a while, especially with COVID, like I, I, I'm still under the belief that we haven't seen the full after effects yet of COVID. Oh, not even close. Yeah. Not even right. Close. Like yeah. there's going to be a lot of that. Not like, for another five, 10 years. Easily. Yeah. From a financial perspective, from uh, a mental health perspective, everything. Right. Because it's like, let's be real for a sec. There was some really tough divorces even that we saw happen during COVID. Right. And like, that's going to be something that runs on. And I really think, which that's just an example, but I really think that time gave people either a lot of time to think positively about what they're doing and if it's meaningful to them. And maybe some of them also looked at that as a time where it's like, I really don't know what I'm doing here. Like I, mm-hmm. I made a mistake during this, like, what am I doing? So I think this whole great resignation, like burnout really only happens if you're not passionate about what you're doing, right? It's like, then it becomes like you're going through a slug and a grind. And I know that passionate people sometimes can get burnt out too. But if you look at the tasks that they're really not loving, it's usually when they're doing something that doesn't fall in line with what they want, Hmm. right? So it's like, for me personally, I think people are finally learning what it is they really want. I think there's been a lot of, tough personal conversations people have had with themselves and look in the mirror moments. And I think that's led to a lot of this resignation thing. Like I was talking to a coach today and he goes, man, we took this player on. We told him he's going to be part of the development plan for this team for the next couple of years going forward. And he's most likely, you know, it's similar to a red shirt scenario in college where it's, you don't play for the year. And he goes, he was all in when I told him about it this past off season and now he's saying this was one of the worst decisions he made. Interesting. And it's like, that's the look in the mirror moment I'm talking about. It's like, so you look at that micro scenario and you blow that up now to people who had three years in Canada, at least to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a really long time. It's a huge amount of time. Yeah. Right. Like you, you don't really work. And then you're coming back. It's like, I got to come back to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then people are like, no, I don't. Right. <laughs> and that's, a, that's what multi yeah. like, I, I don't like, I don't have to not work for two years more or less and come back and, be treated you realize how badly you've been treated i feel like that's what happens was like oh they don't they don't care about me mm-hmm. i feel that's what's happening a lot too yeah. mm-hmm. well even look on the other side too guys like divorce rates yeah right mm-hmm. like i i actually so going back to the sports side i'm a big soccer guy so i've been following this whole situation with antonio conte who's going through it right now in tottenham and how he's he just outlashed the media and whatever and they're talking about it and he's like he re- he refers to one thing that i heard and i was like that's it that's that's 100% it he had three friends who passed away close to him this past year mm-hmm. and he goes i had a deep he said this in january he goes i had a deep reflection point in my life where i was really asking myself like is this really worth it and i think that so now he's in a spot where he's probably going to be out of the team he's going to get sacked but I think that's happening to a lot of the time in different scenarios right now as a post-pandemic kind of thing, right? Where it's like some people are coming home and they had to work from home and they're in this big, you know, cold and lonely uh, uh, condo or apartment. And it's like, I threw my family away for this. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that going on, to be completely honest with you. I think there's, because we've even got personal people who've reached out and it's like, I'm going through this crisis. Like I, I pissed my family away for 14 years just to work up to this title only to find now this is what I gave it for. Mm. That That's such an incredible yeah. p- point because I've heard the number of people I've heard 
say those kinds of words, you know, and, and a lot of them are starting to do reflection points of, mm -hmm. you know, things like they'll look at people in higher positions, positions that they wanted to strive for that, you know, not that long ago was the core the objective, pinnacle. the pinnacle. And they're looking at them and they go, is this really what I'm working towards? Like, yep. is this what I want? Is this the whole, I come home after a, a, an eight, nine hour day only to try and, you know, find, muster the energy to spend time with family and friends and half the time I'm on my cell phone still responding to emails and working deep into the night just to get up and rinse and repeat. Yep. I think there's a lot of that happening. Is that, it, it almost reinforces that there definitely needs to be a change yes. in work culture. Yep. Well, even if you compare it to like the European work life, right? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of a lot of times we look at it and it's like, oh, they they don't work as hard. It's like that's absolutely not true. They have way better balance points than we do, mm -hmm. right? Where it's like in North America, we have a mindset of go, 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 go all the time, go and go and go. And like you look at a European person who's built in their lifestyle it's natural over there more points of reflection than it is in the nor the average North American person's, right? And it's like, these are people who are constantly, in Europe at least, they're more critical on how they look at situations, right? Like if you've, my family always says this all the time, it's like, oh my God, this, you know, cousin we have from Italy, she's only four years old, but she acts like she's 10. Hmm. It's like, yeah, because they're often put into situations where they have to be more critical about their decisions and their thoughts way more than we are here. Right. Right. It's like, for example, 12 years old, you can be walking around the streets of Italy with a bottle of beer in your hand and going to nightclubs. <laughs> right. <laughs> like we can't do that here. Yeah. <laughs> you don't trust 18 year olds. No. To do that right. And it's like, <laughs> hey, man, like you got to grow up really fast. And that's that, but that's where the whole reflection period yeah. happens. Yeah. You know, we don't reflect here. We don't. And I'm not trying to go off and sound, you know, taboo in any way, but it's like really sitting and thinking about why you're doing what you're doing and if you're actually happy doing it, that is such an overlooked thing, in my opinion, by all means. How important, obviously the work-life balance is very important. And when you get to talk to the CEOs and the C-suites, how do you, I guess, point that out or help them? Because you're saying like, it's work all the time. So how do you mm -hmm. make sure, like, I know you're saying how you, scheduled that event mm -hmm. right? what are other little things you do to make sure that they you know pick that time for themselves well first off i think something that's often not addressed when it comes to that is like you have to deal with that very delicately mm. right because so let's pretend we go back to the 14 year scenario and you want to hit somebody right in the face and be like hey by the way pal you pissed away a whole family for this you're right it's like that's a midlife crisis yeah. <laughs> yeah. right that's a that's a that's a really bad recipe for helping somebody go through the right paces. I think the best way that we've handled it is in steps. I think like anything in life, it can't just be a hard stop wall, cold turkey. Like there are some scenarios that you can't do that, but you have to realize that's a lot more on the individual than it is on the coach. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's where the selflessness part comes back in. It's like, you can't just, for example, even with an athlete, tell them, Hey, you played like crap today. Like there's yeah. a way of telling yes. somebody you you played like crap, yeah. <laughs> right? So that's you want to break them down to the point where then they can't even come back from that. Correct. I only believe in the whole breakdown part in extreme scenarios, like an intervention type. I think that's where, you know, getting somebody to change through extreme pain is is one of them. But 
back to your point, it's like, first, there has to be a daily reflection piece that you add in. A second thing that I think is very um, underrated is taking the time to to really question your decisions of the pain and pleasure it causes you in life, right? It's like, it goes back to the first question you asked about what makes an athlete elite. It's like, they know what the trade-off is in a negative and in a positive, right? And it's like, okay, so let's look at something for a sec. You wanna do the extra hour, and then when you're done the extra hour of work, you wanna come home and answer emails for two more hours. Great, I'm guilty of this, by the way. Mm -hmm. I've done this. I've done this to a point that my wife's called me out, and it's like, Okay, so the realistic trade-off, she's going to be pissed off with me, <laughs> right? Probably for the next little bit. Now, let's look at that over the course of a week. Well, that's probably going to be four to five out of the seven days a week she's going to be pissed off with me. Okay, let's look at that over the course of a month, over the course of a quarter, over the course of a half year, over the course of a year. Just gets worse. Mm -hmm. It's a stacking process, right? You don't get fat overnight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the saying, right? It's the truth. Yeah. yeah. So those are... Two exercises of reflection on exact, if you did in your day what you did that was meaningful to you, you got to reflect on that. Another big part of it though, is taking the time daily to ask yourself like, did I move closer to the pain or the pleasure today? Mm. What am I trading off? Did I trade off the wrong today or the right? Right? And it's like, I know that's basic, but that's what drives human behavior is pain and pleasure. Sometimes the most simplest of techniques work the most effective. Well, even with us, like part of our belief system at Molotium, it's like, quality over quantity you don't need the meditation app and the journaling and this and that like if you want to that's totally on you mm -hmm. but you need the things that work yeah you need basics you need simplicity and you need to do it consistently consistently yeah right. amazing matt <laughs> on the note of quality this was a, a really quality <laughs> conversation yeah. i love this this yeah. was so insightful thank you for coming through thanks for having me on this was this was awesome we definitely got to do this again Totally. Whatever yeah. you guys want. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it, Thank you for coming. Where can Thank people you. find you? Um, always the company page, M-O-L-L-I-T-E-U-M. -L -L -E if you put a .com in front of that, you'll find us. And if you put an at sign in front of that, you'll find us there too. Yes. And then just first and last name for me, Matt Calderoni, C-A-L-D-A-R-O-N-I, because everybody spells it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for coming through, brother. Thank really you. Thank appreciate you guys. this. Poncho, we appreciate you. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you very much.